What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what makes their businesses tick? Today, I am talking to Des Trainer, one of the co-founders of Enacom and its chief strategy officer. I'm a big fan of yours, Des. I've watched more than a few of the talks that you've given and read a lot of your articles as well. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Cortland. I'm a huge fan of Indie Hackers. It's really cool to hear that. So Entercom is a suite of messaging-first products that pretty much any internet business can use to accelerate growth by directly talking with their customers. Is that an accurate way to describe it? That's very accurate, yeah. How did you get started working on Intercom? It's funny. The reason we got started uh, was because of a pain we had with our previous product. Like Intercom wasn't actually the original plan. It sprang out of solving a personal pain that we had with a previous software as a service business. So way back in 2010, uh, starting in 2008, I guess, we had a, a Ruby on Rails error tracker tool called Exceptional. And with Exceptional, we had thousands of paying customers uh, all over the world, very, very few in Ireland where we were based. And we had no easy way to talk to them whatsoever. We would frequently, it was my job to, you know, get an export of all the active users that we had and import that into campaign monitor and send out an email like, hey, how's it going? Here's some features we're working on. Uh, What would you like to see from us next? And then we'd get all these replies into my Gmail, which I'd then have to forward around to various people. Uh, like it was only a small team, there was four or five of us. And I'd be forwarding these things around saying, should we work on this? Should we work on that? But it was like, it was a really, really messy workflow. In fact, everything about running a SaaS business back then was quite messy. There was no Stripe, there was no like mixed panel, there was no good tools or tooling or instrumentation. So we figured rather than like doing this messy email flow, one day, we decided, well, what if we just put a message inside the product instead? And the logo for Exceptional at the time was a little star, and it sat in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. And one day, a little speech bubble popped out of the star saying, hey, uh, here's some features we've recently released. What would you like us to work on next, etc." And what was remarkable was the response to that was so much higher and so much more engaging than anything we'd ever received from our email before. And we started to think, shit, this is a much better way to speak to our users. Like Being like a group of founders based in Ireland with customers all over the world, but very few in Ireland, we did feel really disconnected from our customers. We felt we had no sort of personal relationship with them. And this was the first sort of channel we felt that let us speak through our product to them when they're in our product. So we started to iterate on that. You know, We made it easier for our customers to reply. We made it so that we could target which customers could see the messages and which, which customers couldn't. Then it was simple things like, show me who has been in the product and seen the message. And before you know it, we had this like live sort of customer database with communication tools springing out of it that we could then use to have real conversations with our customers, get them using certain features, get feedback on other things, support them when they bump into bugs. And from there, like I remember multiple customers saying to us, yo, I'm not really cool on this exceptional thing. It's a bit, you know, it's not that exciting. But this weird thing that you talk to me through, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, so like that was kind of the genesis of Intercom. We eventually sold Exceptional. It went on to become a part of Rackspace. And we just all went all in on Intercom. Our CEO, Owen, moved to San Francisco. We raised some money. We hired some people. And it's been quite a roller coaster since then. I was looking at the original blog post where you guys announced Intercom as a standalone product that you posted on Hacker News back in, I think, 2011. Mm-hmm. And there's a section in there that's titled... Our MVP is bigger than your MVP. Than your, yeah. <laughs> because it actually took you guys quite a while to build the product and get it out the door. What did that process look like and why did it take you so long? Yeah, so the, the, the our MVP is bigger than your MVP comment was, uh, it was, I think Owen wrote that referencing that like every time we showed this product to any, anyone, the number one piece of feedback was, shit, you guys have built a lot of software. And if you recall 2011, it was just around this sort of peak lean. Uh, everyone was following Eric Reese's doctrine on the minimum viable product, the lean startup, et cetera. And we had kind of gone the non-lean way in that we had built this like sales marketing and support tool with like live CRM attached and like messaging and email and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. And uh I think the stages were, uh, briefly, it was like, um, in a nutshell, uh, we first of all built a way to push messages out. Then we built a way to see who had seen the messages. Then we built a way to only send messages to certain people based on criteria that they'd met. 
Then we built a live user list so you could sort of see your users. Then we built in layers of automation so you could like always target people when they met certain criteria. And uh, then we built a fancy sort of support-based inbox. So if you're supporting a customer who's on your premium plan, you can be extra implied or you can uh, you know, tell them about certain features that only they would see or whatever. And then, um, and then when we had all of that fully, uh, well, not fully baked, still not fully baked, but I guess when we felt that that like, was all in a good place, uh, we launched email. And I think there was a kind of a notable step change when we sort of said, hey, all of these things that can appear in your product, you can also send them as email. And um, when we did that, that was one of the first sort of, I think like, um, yeah, step change is probably the best word, where people were like, wow, I can do a lot of stuff with this. You can be my marketing, you can be my support, you can be my product feedback, you can be my research, you can be my CRM. And we were like, yes, we we think we can be all of those things. <laughs> uh, I guess seven years later, I'm like realizing the implications of those decisions. But yeah, it, it, that was that was how we kind of stepped it out. And it wasn't like the the driving force for each decision or each incremental piece of functionality was simply uh, what did we want to do with the product. Uh, we you know and we expanded it until it bumped into the edges of what we thought made sense for a customer communication platform of sorts. Our mission all the way along, just uh, to kind of give the context to this, is we always said we wanted to make internet business personal. And we said that when we started in 2011, and we still say that today. For us, like the the background to this was, you know, some version of, we believe all businesses will become internet businesses. And we believe that a lot of revenue will definitely shift towards recurring revenue, or uh, like subscription revenue of sorts. And um, and subscriptions, whether it's Spotify or whether it's Amazon Prime or whatever, it's based on a positive experience and customer loyalty. And customer loyalty is based on positive interactions with your customers. And and we wanted to build a tool that made it easy to have these really positive interactions that would build the relationships, that would build the loyalty, that would grow the revenue. And that was kind of, you know, so whenever we considered what was in scope or out of scope, we simply asked ourselves, will this help make a personal relationship between a business and a user? Because like the one direction we always have to say no to from the start and we're big proponents of saying no in general have admittedly said yes to some pretty chunky pieces of software was like people always wanted to pull an analytics tool out of us because i think we were the first people to have like live user data in a sort of crm or at least mm-hmm. the first people we, we were aware of whenever people can see all these rows of of people and we'd show their names and their current state and what they were doing Everyone was like, oh, I want to see this as a, you know, I want to see this as a cohort chart. I want to see this as like, you know, a, a sort of a retention chart or a cycle plot or something like that. And we were, we were always kind of hesitant because we're like, that's a different product for us. And that was probably the biggest area we had to shy away from in terms of like, in terms of where we drew the lines. We're like, we're not going to become an analytics tool because at the time there was like Mixpanel, there was Kiss Metrics, uh, all sort of coming up. And, and when we looked at them, we're like, they're specifically not about making internet business personal. That's not to say they're bad tools, great tools, but they were like going in a very different direction than us. And we were happy that they were in a different direction than us. And we didn't want to also have to adopt that direction too. So that's kind of how we sort of stacked the features up. The evolution over time has actually been to just get more refined on exactly what it is we're doing. We haven't really said yes to much areas of communication for businesses outside of the sort of original scope. So you guys wanted to make internet business personal. At what point did you actually sit down and explicitly write this out as your vision? And also, what did you hope to gain by having such a clearly defined vision so early on in your company's life? I remember when we did it, we had a, in our, we had a very, very horrible office on the north side of Dublin above a university uh, in one of their sort of cheap rental spaces. And we had these nine whiteboards and we basically moved from whiteboard to whiteboard, writing up everything that we kind of believe. And a lot of what we believed was loyalty, personality, relationships, et cetera. And from there, I can't remember the exact moment when we distilled it down, but I think we'd had a few different uh, pops at it. And you can, you know, if you look at some of my earlier writing, I think I wrote a piece for Smashing Magazine, which was called like taking a customer from like to love or something like that. And that was like various different stabs at coming up with a kind of a mantra or like an, a sort of a theme for the business. Um, I don't remember exactly when we settled on making internet business personal, but one thing that we've always been firm on is like a kind of, you know, a, a mission and a vision driven business is a really important thing uh, when you want to bring other people on board and when you want to have a sort of clarity of thought. And I think once we actually uh, geographically split up, it became phenomenally more important to make sure that we you know there's some core axioms that we all believed from which we could infer the sort of decisions we should be making and i think you know as we scaled we're now we're now like 500 people 
everyone, if you grab any random intercomrade from like London, Chicago, Sydney, San Francisco, Dublin, and ask them what's intercom here to do, they will all say without hesitation to make internet business personal. And that, you know, it, it trickles into everything. Like our design, our design pattern library includes rules such as never talk about a user without showing their face and their name. That's how you keep things personal. Like it, it, it leaks into everything that we do. And uh, and I think that has been really uh, powerful. It has also like, you know, obviously every single meaningful opinion you hold has to be in some sense divisive. Like not everyone thinks it should be true. And at times we've we've had people push back and say, I don't want this to be personal. I want this to be like mass market transactional or whatever. And, and our attitude has always been, well, that's fine. That's just a different product. That's not what we're here to do. And if you choose to progress with us, you're going to be disappointed because we're going to ship a lot of features that will make things more personal. And because we believe that's the best way to grow your business. And if you disagree with that, you're not going to like what you see coming over the next couple of years in terms of product. So we've always kind of believed you anchor a company around a mission and a vision. You don't just kind of keep... That was one of my earlier sort of frustrations with the the lean startup idea was like, I always felt like there was a sense of just keep throwing MVPs at a wall and see what sticks. And I've always felt, no, like you have to start with some core things that you really fundamentally believe about the world and and like use that as your kind of your basic uh, sort of principles from which you extrapolate hypotheses and products. But if, if you don't start from there, I always worry that like you're just going to become like, hey, we're a project management tool and now we're an analytics tool and now we send email and now we take screenshots and annotate them. And, you know, you can just dance around but never really get anywhere. And I think it's one of those areas where people confuse like uh, movement with momentum. And uh, and I, it's always been a, like a frustration of mine when I've seen companies flounder like that. So one of the things that you guys did early on is you had to settle on Entercom as a product that you were going to get behind. And I think a lot of early stage founders struggle because they're not sure if they should commit to what their current idea is. They might see a few tendrils of traction, but they're not sure if it's significant enough. They see a few people express interest, but not sure if it's sincere. How did you guys decide wholeheartedly that Entercom was a product you wanted to work on? And how can other early stage founders read the clues to decide if what they're working on is really the right product or if they should change to something else? It's a great question. and I'll answer it a couple of different ways. Uh, the first thing I'd say is like, it was for us a real solution to an actually real problem that we had. When I first like saw the user dashboard that we'd created inside Intercom, I really knew at the time that we'd created something that was just fundamentally very, very valuable because uh, I'd never seen it before. And it was just this really visceral sense of here are my users. These are the people who are paying me for my product. And that was just a moment where I, I, you know, I knew no matter what, someone was going to make this thing successful. Like it might not be our version of it, but someone's going to make this idea of a live user list into a product and it'll be popular. In the years since, obviously, a lot of people have done that. Then um, when we saw some of the response rates that we got uh, to people, uh, like when we sent out our own messages to our users and they were replying in such crazy volume, I was like, I just knew that there was... the, the sort of strands of something there. The other thing I'd say is um, in our beta, we we invited like a lot of our kind of, you know, friends and family, if you like, type people. One of them I remember having a really long Skype call with, you might know him, Garrett Demon, who had a product called Sifter. Oh yeah, I had him on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so I remember Garrett tried a pilot of Intercom and he pushed a message live to all, all of Sifter's users saying some version of, hey, Gareth here, I'm the guy who works on Sifter. I'm the only guy who works on Sifter. I'd love to know what you think of the product and I'd love to know if there's any features you would you'd like me to work on. And that was what he did. And he did a Skype call with us one late one evening over here. Uh, it was like 9 or 10 p.m. We were in a shared office space. And literally, as soon as the Skype call connected, he was like, holy shit, you guys, this is the most amazing product I've ever seen. I've been, I've been typing all day to like 2,000 customers. This is amazing. I've never been so connected to my customers. And we're like, whoa, 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 what? And he's just like, he was showing us screenshots of like what was happening and where I was just like, right, this thing is for real. It's definitely something people really need and want. That was one way in which, so it was kind of like, did it solve our problem? And for somebody like, and our problem was as a SaaS business, can we connect to our customers? Can we talk to our customers in easy ways and get, and like, you know, in some sense, get some sort of value out of those conversations? And our beta, our beta hypothesis was if we find other people who are like us, will they react the same way that we did? And that kind of proved that. The, um, the last piece, I guess, that you always have to kind of test with all is that both of those conditions can be true, but you could still build a product that's worth very little. 
let's say your whole thing is like, I don't know, like annotating screenshots or let's say it's like, I don't know, like some, like let's just say, I guess what I'm getting at here is a very, very small sliver of functionality or a very, very rare sliver of functionality. Something you don't need a lot. I think, you know, in general, if you're going to start a startup, if you're an entrepreneur out there, you should, you know, I think it's a lot easier if you're tackling a problem you really know yourself. But if you're tackling somebody else's problem, it's make sure you, there's, there's a lot of other people like that in the world and make sure that your beta kind of proves, like I'd say still pick a customer and freeze on them and make sure you're solving their problem and then try to extrapolate to like your beta to find more customers like that. But the the core question I always encourage people to ask is like, is this a big common problem? And when I think of like big, meaning like it's it's a substantial problem such that people will pay money for it to go away and common meaning like, does it happen a lot? Uh, and does it happen to a lot of people? And if it's a big common problem, then that's usually a good sign that you're onto something. So like when I think of like, say, Stripe, payments is a big problem and every business on earth needs to make money and they need to charge at the very least once a month, right? Slack, talking to your colleagues is a problem and people talk to their colleagues all the time, especially in a remote uh, friendly world. Uh, intercom, talking to your customers is something people need to do and you need to do it an awful lot for sales, marketing, product research, uh, support, you name it, reasons. So I always think they're just, latch onto those kind of big common problems make sure it solves your problem and if not your problem make sure have one really tight reference customer make sure you're nailing their problem and then extrapolate uh, to form your hypothesis around your beta and if you can check those three boxes i'm solving my problem my beta shows that i'm not i'm not a lunatic i'm not the only person in the world like this and this problem is for real it is big it is common it is out there then i think you're you kind of have the bones of a great startup there you just you from that from that point, you just need to play it out. Now, there's a million challenges still to go, but I think that's the kind of the ingredients you, you want to be looking for at the start. One of the challenges that a lot of founders have to face is, what is my business model going to be? And in addition to the lean startup being sort of a popular movement back around 2010, 2011, when you look at the big tech companies back then that everybody revered and held up as the standard of what you wanted to be, it was Facebook and Twitter. There was no Uber, there was no Airbnb or Instacart or Stripe. None of the big role model, unicorn companies were really charging customers money. How did you guys decide that you wanted to charge for Intercom and what did you guys want to ultimately become? Our heroes growing up in the tech industry was Basecamp, aka 37 Signals when we were growing up. Um, we, like, I think, I really think like we won't fully realize the impact that Jason Fried and DHH have had on the industry for many, many years to come. When people look back and read the Getting Real book and think of the amount of startups that launched, there are like many, many multi-billion dollar startups that point to either Ruby on Rails or the book Getting Real or the Signal versus Noise blog as their starting point, the piece that made them feel that they too could have a go at it and they too could actually start a business. And they were always kind of upfront about, if you want to run a business, you should charge some money. So for us, knowing that we were selling software to, you know, other, you know, let's say like at the time, B2B SaaS companies, today we sell to B2C and e-commerce and, you know, entertainment companies and media and gaming. But back then, like our target customer was like the sifter or the base camp of the world. So back then it was very simple. It was like, of course, we're going to charge money. We're going to charge money every month. It's going to be called a subscription because this is what we've seen those who have had successful footsteps do. And actually, uh, iron- not ironically, just in, in full roundabout, like we, myself and Owen, uh, flew to Chicago to meet with Jason Fried, specifically with the question, how much money should we charge? And, uh, and he gave us great advice at the start. And um, from that point onwards, I think it was like July 2012. Uh, so we ran a free beta for quite a while. Uh, then we introduced our sort of beta pricing of like $50 a month, which was like, I could tell you every single reason why $50 a month was a terrible pricing decision. And at the same time, the right decision for where we were. It's cool to hear this because Jason Fried and DHH over at Basecamp are also my biggest role models around the exact same time period. I remember going to Y Combinator's startup school conference and hearing Jason talk. And I'd never really heard anybody say that you don't need to raise money if you're starting a startup. What you really need to do is solve a problem, put a price tag on your product, and customers will pay you a monthly fee and you can make a living that way. It just wasn't mainstream opinion at the time. Was it, was it Jason or David? I, I remember like David had the whole, like uh, uh, he gave the infamous one where it was like step one, step two, step three. Yeah, I saw the YouTube video yeah. of that talk and then yeah, I okay, went okay. and Jason was speaking the year that I went. But mm. that's also one of my mm-hmm. favorite talks ever. Yeah, mine too. I think what's interesting about Intercom is that the Basecamp guys were very much charge money for your products, but they're also somewhat anti 
venture capital. They were against yep. raising money. With Intercom, you guys have done both. You've charged, you've raised. Yep. How did you guys look at navigating that path? So I think like we're not alone in that regard. You know, I could name like dozens of SaaS companies who both charge and raise, if you know what I mean. I think uh, in the consumer space, it makes a lot more sense to not charge because you can't really like most of these things are like a marketplace-esque type situation where you need to grow an audience so that you can sell ads to them. But you can't grow an audience from an ads first perspective. So you have to grow the audience on VC money. And then you can then start bringing in the advertisers. And hopefully revenue from advertisers is greater than cost of running the service. And that's what you call a profit. It's very, very different in like the sort of in the more traditional, like let's sell software to businesses uh, world where you're delivering very, very obvious value on a monthly basis. So you just need to find a price point that uh, that proves that out. So that's why we started charging the flip side and probably the, maybe the, the general thrust of your question is kind of so why did we start raising? I think like, as I said at the start, like we've bitten off a large amount of software and to maintain it all and grow it all to a point where it can deliver on its full value and its full profit requires a lot of people or a lot of time. But generally speaking, you can reduce the amount of time it takes to do something by bringing in some more people. Now, at this point, people will usually guffaw and point me to various different like software laws, like versions of nine people can't make a baby in a month, etc. But it is true when you're trying to produce software for sales, marketing and support that if you can have a team working in sort of in harmony, all with a shared vision and a shared mission, that you can actually build more than one piece of software at a time. I don't think anyone should really contest that. I think um, the piece that we're, like, you know, where it goes from there is like, we obviously could have bootstrapped uh, Intercom off the revenue. It just would have taken a lot longer, a lot, lot longer. And I'm not, like, you know, sitting here in 2018, I, I, I still, I can't imagine a world where the company would be in the same position had we chosen to take that route. The competitive landscape typically heats up. There's a, like a, a lot of fragmentation in the sort of marketing technology space once somebody hits onto a good idea. And in general, your ability to move fast is important. Uh, and in all but a few circumstances, you can, you know, if you're running a good company, you can move fast with more people. Presuming you can have like good uh, sort of distinction of functions and roles, you can generally speed up. So it came down to a case of like, how much software do we want to build? How quickly do we think we can get it done? And do we think that more people will help us get it done quicker? And in that, in, in all cases, we felt like the answer was yes. So we made the decision in 2012 to raise $1 million. And from that point, we went from like just four founders to being, I think, a team of 12 people. And we found that we had really sort of uh, caught fire. Like people were really starting to get into the product. We had started charging. Revenue was starting to come in. We really felt like the the, the limiting factor uh, on on everything was just how quickly can we produce the rest of the software that we need to produce, uh, to, like you know, to satisfy our current customers and potentially expand into new areas. And every single time, it's that's been our sort of situation. We've been like, right, we know that there's a lot more software to build. We know that we're very good at building software. Like and that, that that might sound arrogant, but I guess it's just self confidence in this exact case. And it would seem like a logical thing that like if we could get cash, we could turn that cash into product, and we could turn that product into cash in such a way that it would be like kind of ROI positive. So we figured we should do that. And I think um, a general sort of point people often make is like you know oh well, you should have been like uh, you should have you know run it off revenue alone but like i think that, that that's kind of a nonsense argument in that like the very second you sit down with your fingers on a keyboard to write the first line of your like next product you're inherently in the red from a time perspective already like as in you're already losing money by the fact that you've started working on something so like everyone's familiar with the idea that you're not you're not profitable from day one it might take time to actually realize the true value of what you've created and, uh, and in that world, like fundraising is just a sort of it's it's a financial decision you make to fuel the sort of product development. And there's loads of ways to fuel a product development. And that's just one of them. And I, and I think like people, I think over index on the decision made and like the sort of the path. I think there are so many good examples of great companies that have raised money. Take Shopify or New Relic or Zendesk or HubSpot or you name it. Gosh, uh, Campaign Monitor. There's plenty of like you know track records of people who've played out this path and played it out well and like th that's kind of how we see it let's talk about your role at intercom for a little bit you are the chief strategy officer 
out of the four co-founders of Intercom, why were you the one to get that role and what exactly does it entail? It's an abstract title to kind of reflect a diverse workload. So um, at various times in Intercom, I started off working in product, then I moved on to set up customer support, then I helped set up people operations, uh, helped set up recruiting in, in our Dublin office. Then I moved on to marketing uh, and post-marketing, I moved uh, back to product, which is where I work now. And I think like the option was I could change my title every like nine to 12 months, or I could just agree that, hey, like I'll work in the areas where I think I can inform, guide, or occasionally create the strategy. And as a result, chief strategy officer is kind of where we settled in terms of a position it's probably not 100% accurate at any given point, but it's more accurate than like the constant chopping and changing, which would make for a messy LinkedIn, which is, let's be honest, what we all care about here. No, but I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, uh, yeah, no, so it, it's like, that was the reason behind the title. And why were you suited to be the chief strategy officer as opposed to your partners, who I assume are sticking with more traditional roles for longer periods of time? Yeah, fair point. So like Owen was always our CEO and Owen was the CEO of our previous business and it's always been like that and that's always been the working relationship I've had with Owen. Kieran was our CTO uh, and Kieran is still our CTO. Uh, he was an engineer, I'm not an engineer. And David Barrett was our like, sort of lead front-end developer. So Intercom has like two very obvious halves. There's the messenger that you see on everyone else's site and then there's the back end where you go and control everything and talk to users and all that sort of stuff. And broadly speaking, uh, early days, the messenger and everything you see on the front end was controlled by David and the back end was controlled entirely by Kieran. And I, my job was, honestly, I was like uh, talking to customers every day. I was trying to get us more customers, taking feedback from the beta. And I think we didn't, we, we didn't really have titles at the very start because it actually didn't matter. Like, who were we talking to? Such the titles would matter. But it was as we kind of moved through the gears of forming a company, it became clearer to kind of define roles and responsibilities. And I, I guess it's fair to say, like, when we looked around, everyone kind of had a role, except for, in a sense, me. Uh, I had, like, multiple bits of roles and loads of things I could contribute to. And like the only sort of unifying thing we could probably point to was, like, as I said, like, some sense of, like, strategic involvement or kind of making sure that we have a strategy or, or if there is a strategy, making sure that, it's, that it has all the context and information and input that it needs from all parts of the company and, that's kind of how we settle on me. It probably roughly matches my skill set. Um, but yeah, that, that was how it started. Let's talk about those early days before you guys had titles. I've heard you describe them as you guys sitting down and contacting customers one at a time, trying as hard as you could to convince them to sign up for Intercom and use it and eventually become paying customers. And a lot of people listening in are in a similar phase with their business where they don't really have any paying customers and they're trying to get their first customers in the door. Do you remember any specifics about what that process was like for you guys and what you learned as a result? Oh yeah, I remember all the specifics. That was like that was the that was, they were the hard days. We had a list of people who we knew through the industry, uh, and they had like a like Gareth Demon would have been amongst them. Um, people who had like reasonably popular products, and our attitude was they all need to use Intercom, and. Every day I would go to work and I'd pick off five or 10 of them and I'd write a very personal email sort of saying like, hey, big fan of your tool. Uh, I love project management the way you do it as well over here. We used to use your product in this, in this case. I'm working on a tool called Intercom. It's going to connect you with your customers. Here's what it would look like in your product. Here's what your user, your user list would look like. Here's what you'll see when you log into Intercom. And this is all one long flowing email, very, very bespoke to each, each individual and all I was ever looking for was either a customer or good feedback on what I could do right for the next customer. And we had to win them over like one by one by one. It was, you know, genuinely like 10 customers a day was kind of our goal. But because I was in Dublin and most of our customers were in San Francisco, you generally find out throughout the evening. So I'd be maybe awake till like 2 a.m. making sure that no customer was left behind. And like genuinely, I would like jump on Skype calls at 2, 3 a.m. if there was any confusion. So would Kieran, our CTO, he had to manually onboard people where, where anything was in any way atypical. We would do whatever the hell it took to get people up and running because we needed to learn. And, you know, it's hard to design, say, for example, a good onboarding experience until you know exactly what people are trying to do or trying to achieve. And then you can start to tailor what, you know, you can start to then automate pieces of what's actually uh, what you're doing as a human. But like the experiences was like every day I would read my email and it would be like six slaps in the face, which would look like no, not now or can't see the point or I could build this myself in a weekend. I remember that particular customer. 
uh, who was so confident they could build it in a weekend. And I was like, right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I often think, I, I, I like thinking about mailing them now, but I'm not that bitter. Although I do remember. Um, uh, and like, you read all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. And like some, uh, you know, like, I think I said this before somewhere, but like, I think this is necessary. Like I have friends who've starting, who are starting companies these days. And, and one of the biggest fears I have for them is that, you know, that Intercom maybe didn't teach them everything that, um, that it could have because the gritty work is so important and so relentless, but also it's, it's important beyond just that's how you win a customer. I think it's really valuable to actually taste the pain of defeat and be fueled by the sort of fire of success. Whenever someone was like, you know what, I'll give it a try. And I knew the very second I could get them looking at their active user list, I was like, you're over the line now. You'd pay $100 a month for us, uh, uh, you know, now that you've seen the value. So my whole job was just getting them from a first email where they either had never heard from me or hadn't heard from me in quite a while to the point of them seeing their user list. And I, I really took it as like, I felt I was almost being altruistic because I knew if I got them there, they'd absolutely love it. Uh, so that was what I, I would do, whatever it took. I remember like I had... um one customer who was in Hyderabad in India and they basically like, they were all set. There was like a company of like 18 people and they were like, okay, look, Des, I'm sold, but I need you to sell our CTO, our CIO and our VPN or something like that. Uh, can you jump on a call at like, I think it somewhat innocuously said like say 10 PM, but it turned out it was actually gonna be like 4.30 AM for me. So, I went home thinking, yep, set my alarm for 4.30 a.m. And then I woke up in a sort of, you know, cold sweat and panic at 3.30 a.m. realizing I hadn't brought my laptop home. So I had to like jump into my car and speed, literally speed, like break every law of the Irish roads I've ever fucking known uh, to get to the office, to jump on this call at the last second, just to walk these people through an intercom experience. And they signed up. And not only did they sign up, one of them left the company two months later and joined what went on to become like a $100 million company in India. And they became a customer. And of course, when they became a customer, a lot of other people started to see us on their website or in their product. And then it fueled this whole new wave of people going, well, what is this thing, uh, Intercom? And today, like, I mean, it, it's it's totally over-indexing here to say this, but like today we have a lot of customers in Hyderabad in India. And that to me, like, I can't say that that was all Des, but I'd say like that you plant those seeds, you're maximizing your opportunity. I mean, there's another example. I I used to like, I think it was like around about midnight uh, was the right time for in New Zealand where there's this like incubator where it called, I think it's called like lightning or something like that. Uh, anyway, they um, I used to give them a webinar every quarter on why they should all use Intercom in their startups. A few of them went on to become very big, very successful New Zealand startups and uh, who are like, you know, wildly, uh, wildly large Intercom spending customers now. And it's just, you know, I figured, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. There was going to, it was going to require a lot of the things that don't scale, but they all worked, you know, like uh, you, I, we probably planted a thousand seeds and maybe only 500 trees grew, but that's a lot of trees and it turned out to be a lot of customers for us. I talk to a lot of founders, programmers especially, who have this dream that they're going to build an amazing app, an amazing product, and then it's just going to sell itself. And they're never going to have to hop on the phone. They're never going to have to jump in a webinar. They're never going to have to send a cold email. It's all just going to work out on its own. But then I listen to your story, and here you have Intercom, which turned out to obviously be a, an amazing and useful product for a lot of people. And you still had to put in all of that hard work to get your first customers in the door and really create that groundswell. So hopefully people are listening, and when they start their companies, they won't delude themselves into thinking it's smart to try to skip out on doing all this scrappy work of having one-on-one -on -one conversations with customers. I would 100% agree. I also just think it's the feedback loop that you miss as well. It's not even that. Um, it's not even that. It, you know, I think it's the right thing to do because it's the right thing. Full stop. But you get like so much feedback from like failing on trying to convince people to use your product and listening to why it doesn't resonate and adapting and getting a better pitch and a better pitch. And all of that adds up to like better marketing site copy and better like introductory emails and better like uh, onboarding for your users because you know what the common pain points are and you can sort of preempt them and, and sort of like, uh, you know, speak to them before they occur. And then also like, I've also like, you know, worked with other startups over the last, I guess, like a couple of years where like I've encouraged them to do all of this and it, it has really helped them fail very quickly. And I think that's just as valuable a thing. Like as an entrepreneur, as a young founder, forget young, as a founder, uh, I guess like as it maybe inexperienced is what I meant when I said young. The thing you have, the only thing you have is your time. And 
something that breaks my heart is people who piss away one, two, three years on an idea, scared to bring it to anyone in reality, lest they say no. But they don't realize that that decision is also a decision to like waste so many of your probably like your your limited amount of years on this planet. So I think like it's necessary to kind of, as I said earlier, like taste that pain of rejection and understand how much of these obstacles are surmountable or how much of them are like perpetual. And really, it'll help you understand whether or not you have a business worth investing the best years of your life in. And if you do, then magnificent. But if you don't, then gosh, you'll be glad you really found out quickly by talking to all these people. You mentioned that you guys started by charging $50 a month and that for so many reasons, that was the wrong price to start at, but it was also the right one. What does that mean? Right decision, I'd say. Uh, yeah, so I'd say it was the wrong price, right decision. So a few different thoughts. One, we were running around in circles, kind of, we had like multiple different ways we could consider pr- uh, charging for intercom, but we didn't really know which would, which would make sense and which wouldn't. We had never really uh, been faced with this dilemma before and we knew that we'd gotten pricing wrong as most people, you know, pricing is always wrong. We knew we'd got it quite wrong with our previous business. So we were really like hesitant. We wanted, we wanted to be informed on like making this decision as well as we could. So we, we spoke to Jason and we outlined all the different ways he was thinking about, we were thinking about it. And he stared at our options for a reasonable while and concluded, yeah, basically this wasn't his words, but the message was effectively screw all that, charge $50 and we'll come back to this problem later. And that to me was like kind of like at the time it was like such a breath of fresh air uh, because everything we were everything we were about to do sounded messy or complicated, and this sounded straightforward. And also, I liked the fact that we just come back to this problem. And I think the the, the core insight in what he said was that pricing will basically always change. Your product is going to get more valuable over time. You know, as a you know, a simple example, I'd say Indie Hackers was not as valuable to say put post an advert on after you had one podcast as it is now that you have hundreds. Uh, our intercom was not as good at sending tens of millions of emails in 2011 as it is today, and products get more valuable, which means your pricing will probably have to change to reflect the new value. And that was the kind of the, the key insight uh, that kind of unlocked our thinking and sort of said, right. For now, let's just say it's $50. Let's just say it's beta pricing. And we'll see what happens and we'll come back. And what happened was really interesting. We um, we anticipated we'd lose quite a few of our customers once you start charging. You know, there's this like mythical penny gap. The very second you charge anything for a free product, you lose so many people. I can't remember what our exact drop-off was, but it wasn't as high as we had anticipated. It was maybe like we lost maybe 30, 30 or 20% or something like that. But what was really shocking to me was the feedback and the feature requests we got totally changed after that fact. The way I summed up this insight at the time was that like free users want more software and paying users want better software. So all of our free customers wanted us to expand our offering to do more things for free. And all of our paying users who like kind of stuck around after, all of them were like, hey, I want you to be, I want to be able to send more in apps or I want more types of this or I want to be able to customize how this appears. It wasn't like I want you also to be a reports tool and a survey tool and an analytics tool. Right. And that was, a, that was a real sort of uh, division. So I think like the pieces that were made it right were like it unlocked our thinking, but also brought us these insights and let us refine our product better for those who are using us in a real business valuable way. It's funny going back and looking at the history of your pricing changes with Intercom. I found a thread where there were some complainers who weren't mm-hmm. too happy about some of your changes. And they were complaining about how the $50 a month plan now was going to include a little message on your widget that would say, powered by Intercom. Yes. And this commenter in particular decided that he was going to go off and build his own version of Intercom, and I can only assume that he went off and attempted to do that. But. I hope they did. I mean, like, <laughs> there's an interesting piece here in, in that in general. Like, and I think probably the worst trade-off you can make if you're starting a business is to roll your own anything to save 50 bucks a month. Because most of you, like, you know, most businesses are into, like, you know, if you're starting off, what do you have? You have time uh, to produce product. So why, uh, so that the product can produce money? So why on earth would you instead produce product that can save you money, but still not have you build product? Like it's, it's, it's literally the most pathological running in circles thing I can imagine uh, early stage startups to do. Yet it's very, very common. And I've, I've seen this in multiple cases. People are, I'm going to build my own buffer because I scheduling tweets for $9 a month as a ripoff. I'm like, okay, but like, it, you know, if you, you know, in what world is spending, set, even if it is only like the allegations you might hear is like, oh, it'll only take me a weekend to build intercom. Even if that was true, which it definitely isn't, 
is that still the best use of a weekend? Like, you know, given that it's like $50, is that like, you know, in what world does that calculus actually add up? It's, it's, it, anyway, I, I don't like it's, I get frustrated by that because it's, it's the most broken trade off you can make as an early stage startup. It's almost like, exclusively programmers who, who get lured into that trap, which is interesting because as developers, we should have more knowledge of how long it takes to build things. But I think we get overly confident. Yeah, and, and you should have some respect for the value of software. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's yeah. a different conversation, I guess. So this powered by intercom link that you were putting on your mm-hmm. widget is interesting to me because it's very clearly a growth and a marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. How well did that work? And what are some other strategies you tried around the same time to bring in more customers at a higher volume? Um, it works well. It's kind of like in general, especially. So we we relaunched our messenger uh, in I think April or March of this of this year, and it's like really quite visually distinct and unique from everything else that's out there. And it has like its own platform, so you can build products uh, on top of the messenger that can sit inside the messenger. So you can, like, you can, for example, like indie hackers could like sell a T-shirt inside a conversation with a with a visitor or something like that, right? And it's been very cool. But what we find is like. People really love, like you know, you know, people really love the new experiences we're creating, which means the powered by thing is even more important because they're like, "What the hell is this magic?" And it, they send people through. Overall, I think that was a good decision to powered by. If I could, if I could do it all again, I'd probably go harder on it, uh, as in maybe make it more expensive to get rid of it or something like that. The other strategies we tried at the time, we built a sort of native uh, tell your friend about intercom to save yourself uh, and you'll get a discount type widget. I think that it's a modest success, but not great uh, success, frankly. We also, uh, one thing that was successful for a while, but we recently killed it because it's kind of less relevant. We built a way like to share parts of intercom. So you could share, one of the features intercom had back in the day was a user map where you could show, see your users all over the world. And then we built a public version of that where you could basically have a public link. Day. So, you know, early stage startups could tweet like, we have users in 500, uh, 500 cities across 100 countries or something like that. And it would be a beautiful looking map that like everyone could then tweet and Facebook and LinkedIn. And, and that worked because people were like, wow, this intercom thing looks cool. I didn't realize you could get this map out of it. Um, we also built ways to share a conversation, uh, publish an email, etc., um, They were some of the best ways that we found to make intercom, uh, I would say, pseudo viral. But the biggest step change we probably ever had in growth, and we've talked about this before, is um, we built like so the whole gist of Intercom, like, you know, it has in some sense, uh, you know, this is one of the hardest onboarding challenges ever. We need to take a credit card off somebody, which every business has to do. But then we also need them to install JavaScript in the footer of their application. And that JavaScript involves writing some actual code because you need to connect it to a database or something like that. So it's not just pasting like Google Analytics. It's actually some work to send over user data. And that was like the hardest step to make easy. And we tried everything to make that a better throughput step in the funnel. Um, But as we kind of evolved and built out our tool, we we ended up building this tool called an importer, which was, uh, we built this not for our new customers, but actually for our existing customers, which was a way to say, how can I, I have a you know user base of old customers, how can I slurp them into intercom? So we built this like sort of, it would import a spreadsheet basically. But then we realized maybe that would be an easier way to start people off. So rather than having them install JavaScript as step one, maybe we put, uh, upload your spreadsheet of your users, if you have it, as step one. And doing that uh, produced a significant, like maybe like a 30% increase in throughput for that step of the funnel. Oh, wow. Which, which was, you know, literally trajectory defining impact. And uh, I think that was probably one of the biggest wins we ever had. We had a growth team in SF who were working on that. And uh, I think it was like genuinely like, you can see the bump in Intercom's growth where that thing kicked in. Uh, it was all net new revenue. Like it wasn't like cannibalizing our existing JavaScript people. Of course, our developer audience were always going to install the JavaScript, but everyone else, the marketers, the salespeople, the, you know, the product research people, et cetera, they wanted some way to get past this step. And now we had unlocked all that growth and it was huge. That's awesome. It's really cool to hear about how you were able to identify these kinks in your funnel, see what's holding you back and then sort of unkink them and unlock literally new levels of growth. I think a lot of early stage founders struggle with this because there are hundreds of options for how you can increase your business's revenue, how you can bring more customers in the door. And as an early stage founder, you don't have that much time. You're pretty constrained on resources. And so it turns into this prioritization issue. We have to figure out what you're going to work on now and what kinds of things can wait until later. And you've got to make these decisions with very little information to go on. How did you guys handle making decisions and prioritizing what you're going to work on in the early days of Intercom? 
I think like there's a few different like uh there's a few different ways we think about it. One of them we've always sort of said is like, you know, we all we have like for any given team where they have a variety of conflicting outcomes, uh, conflicting in the sense that they all need the same developer time. We create a prioritization rule and the most common one we use is is rice, which is like uh reach, impact, uh confidence and effort. Uh, which basically says how many people will this will this affect? It'll affect all our users or just some of our users or all of our website visitors or just some or whatever. Impact, which is like, what do we think? What's the best case scenario of this? Confidence, how likely is it that we could do this? And then effort, is this like a week or is this a year? And that's generally how we tend to prioritize. And there's a whole blog post on our on our blog, obviously, uh, about the, the, the rice framework. The other sort of general, maybe simpler rule we have is like, we say like uh, it's a phrase from Hunter Walk, but we we always just avoid any team ever snacking. We say like you can work on stuff that is low effort, high impact. That term generally tends to be low hanging fruit, and there tends to be not a lot of it, unfortunately. Uh, the quick wins, if you like, uh, you can work on stuff that's high effort, high impact. That's the majority of your roadmap. You should avoid working on things that are high effort, low impact. That's like when somebody turns around and says, oh, I think we should rewrite the whole product in Erlang for the fun. And it generally tends to not achieve anything, but just take a lot of time. Right. And like everyone's good at avoiding that. However, the thing people aren't good at avoiding is the stuff that's low effort, low impact. Because it has this weird cyclical uh, sort of justification logic, which is, hey, that thing did nothing for us. Yeah, but it only took us 10 minutes to, spe- uh, to set up. And then if you interrogate it from the other side, you say, why are we only spending 10 minutes on this? You're like, oh, well, because of our probably won't do anything. And you can piss away a whole week working on things that are low effort, low impact, as in they basically achieve nothing. Uh, and they don't, they don't like uh, aggregate. They don't like, uh, you know, they don't multiply in any real sense. And I think like, you know, that's always been a sign of a team that's lacking a strategy is that they default to things that are low effort, low impact. And uh, so we've always avoided that. But in general, for prioritization of the things we think that will change the trajectory of the company, it's always been some some version of that rice framework. That's how we've always uh, thought about it it has usually served us well there's obviously a, sl- a sleight of hand in that it implies that we can know all of these variables in advance like how, how many people will this hit how big will the impact be how confident are we but i think it forces the kind of hard trade-offs that you need to have such that you don't just kind of like you know work on the easiest thing first which is i think kind of the bias a lot of uh, a lot of teams will have or you might work on the things that get you the quickest results the soonest the only other piece of advice i have there is um I think a lot of early stage startups tend to like look up the market for uh, for like what are you know oh look Amazon changed this button color and it got them an extra hundred million dollars in revenue. Uh, I think in general, as a startup, especially in the earlier years, you're probably dealing with like website traffic in the thousands or maybe even in the hundreds if you're super early stage. And then if you look at the magnitude of the changes that people tend to look at, they're like, oh, let's try a red button instead of a green button. The reality is like there will be a difference between red and green or between like buy now or buy for free or whatever, whatever copy tweaks you want to try. But it's going to be a really small difference. And because it's a really small difference on a really low website, uh, a really low traffic website, it could take months, maybe years to actually reach statistical significance. And I think it's such a misallocation of resources to look for these tiny, tiny infinitesimal incremental little bits and pieces of wins when you're actually staring death in the face, which is actually what most startups are doing. I think you need to like kind of play for bigger things. And I'd encourage people to like, let's go for something that's going to be hard to achieve. But if we do achieve it, it'll be a lot bigger. I think, you know, versus let's iterate to the perfect version of a home of a, of a website homepage. Like the sad reality is if your product is any good, your homepage conversion is going to be somewhere between like zero and 3%. And getting from like 2.1 to 2.3 isn't going to be the thing that makes you successful. It's either going to be the amount of revenue that people are paying you or the amount of webs, uh, like web visitors you're getting to your site. And they're the variables you actually really have to play with. The conversion stuff is all optimization. So when you look up market and you see that like Facebook have tweaked their button colors or they've you know played with some copy and you try to borrow that idea and bring it onto your own sort of uh, business, it's like putting on somebody's glasses and helping and making you think that they're going to help you see straight. It, it doesn't make sense. And that's one of the ideas behind ND Hackers itself. People end up copying these behemoths. They end up copying what they see Amazon doing, what they see Google doing. 
because they don't know that these companies look very different when they were small. They don't have any insight into what smaller businesses are doing to grow because they don't have any examples to look at. And that's hopefully a problem that Indie Hackers is helping to solve. Absolutely. Let's talk about the opposite problem. What are some things you think founders wait too long to do that they should be doing earlier in their businesses? I would say, uh, in no particular order, I think take your brand more seriously than you are today uh, because it will become, the. It, it's a, it does have the potential to be something of a moat for you, but also you can't grow it in three years' time. You have to start growing it now. And that might mean, it, maybe it's how you advertise, maybe it's how you blog or podcast, or maybe it's what your site looks like or what your logo is, or even what your company is called or how you communicate or your tone of voice or your newsletter. But take it seriously. Uh, it's, it, it, it's an area of investment that only pays off over the long, over the long time. But when it does pay off, it's so valuable. So like, I get asked all the time versions of how can we have a blog like Intercoms? And the answer is go back seven years and start writing a post. I wrote like 92 of the first 100 posts on the Intercom blog. I tried to write three a week. That was what I did. I was just this consistent stream. It was part of my job along with emailing customers. But it's just you have to take it seriously from the start. And that's it's not just, I'm not just talking about the blog here, I'm talking about your whole brand. So like, I think it's not something that can come later. So that's one area where like, you know, I think you, it's really, really hard to work out exactly how much damage you do to yourself when you just, you know, really just screw this up. But uh, I think it's really, really important. And, 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 and like, if you think of any of the, like, the truly iconic breakout tech startups of this generation, they actually have a well-considered brand and, uh, and it's not an accident. So that's one area. I think, other, another obvious area I would say is um, I, I think like people don't think about pricing enough. I think uh, there's still too much of a temptation to stick like a $9 price tag on something and think that if I make it really cheap, then everyone will buy it under the grounds of a kind of screw it, why not? It's only $9 type attitude. I think you, you really need to understand like the, the basics of like value-based pricing. Understand that your price needs to be higher than, than the, the coffee round on your developer team, which is one good asset test I often use. Understand that your pricing needs to change and evolve. Understand that like over time, like you could you, you know, you're going to basically make your product better and better. And if you don't have ways to capture that value, you're gonna struggle because you're gonna, you know, developers aren't getting any cheaper and you know the team only the team size generally only gets bigger. So if your like average revenue per account is like flatlining at nine dollars a month, you're really going to struggle. Unless you're, like you're Spotify and the, and the captive market is your entire world, but P.S. You're not Spotify. So you guys don't share your revenue numbers today, I don't believe, but you have shared revenue numbers in the past. What's the most recent number that you've shared? In January of last year, um, is that right? Yeah, last year we shared that we were at fifty million dollars in annual recurring revenue, and that we had gone from. $1 million in ARR to $50 million in three years. Yeah, that's super quick. It's obviously a lot of money as well. I think it's interesting because the bigger you get, the fewer peers and role models you have to learn from. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular playbook that doesn't exist that you really wish had existed while you were building Intercom? Oh, yeah. Just, I think like uh, anywhere I felt that I ventured outside my own, uh, my own ability or my own experience, um, I think I've made mistakes. So when I worked in marketing, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't understand enough about marketing. And, you know, in general, like like a lot of your listeners who will face this challenge in the future, like when you go to start building your marketing team, you're probably going to screw up. And there aren't many great playbooks out there because honestly speaking, there aren't many great non-consumer tech companies that are particularly good at marketing. Um, but you will make a lot of mistakes and it will be hard. And if there was a playbook, I think it would be useful. In general, I tend to be ever so slightly cynical of the idea that there's a playbook such that like, you know, as in there's one specific way that will work for everyone. But like for sure, if there was good war stories or case studies on how this or that startup brought in marketing and it was a success, I would have loved to have read them two, three years ago. I'd, honestly, I'd still be happy to read them now, but it's more out of a morbid curiosity at this point because we've brought in a CMO and we're kind of like, you know, things are getting better for us. But then on the other side, uh, same with sales, right? Uh, I never really knew anything about sales. We have an awesome sales leader today. I've learned so much from her. But like, uh, but you know, we didn't know what we were doing at the start, or at least I certainly didn't. Like, should we only speak for myself? But like, I, you know, it was all 
net new stuff. I had no idea how any of this worked. And there are people out there that do. And I think, again, there's not really a great like, so you have a successful B2B SaaS startup. Here's how to add sales to the mix. If somebody had you know, published that playbook, I certainly would have uh, loved to have read it uh, a long time ago as well. They're like, you know, but you're totally correct. As the business scales, the number of relevant uh, and resonant examples uh, that you can look to uh, gets thinner and thinner. Um, that's just the nature of growing up, though, I think. What would you put in a sales or a marketing playbook for a super early stage founder who doesn't really have that much experience herself yet? I would probably advise her, uh, in the marketing world, I think you need to, like, there's a lot of homework you need to do to understand them. You know, here's how naive I was. I thought marketing was one team. Uh, marketing in most companies is between seven and 10 teams. Uh, you're talking about product marketing, product education, demand generation, content marketing, PR and analyst comms, uh, communications. You're talking about brand design, uh, potentially partnerships, um, resellers. Uh, and all, all of all of these, and I've already, I've already also, by the way, forgotten a team that's already in Intercom at this stage. Marketing ops would be one, lifecycle marketing, etc. Understanding that that there's a lot going on in marketing that you have never thought about or have the first clue about is a is a you know is the first step I would advise any young founder to think about. Think about. Secondly, I I think um, a lot of people think of marketing from you know if you think of ye proverb, proverbial funnel. Uh, where on the left you have like you know your sources of demand, and on the right you have your happy customer. Uh, a lot of people think about marketing from the outside in, so they're like, "All right, we've got the product, let's start buying ads." And I think that's really not a great way to do things. I would always advise people to go the other direction. Have you really got the product? Is your churn and your retention metrics good? Are you happy that your revenue expands when a customer sticks around for for like years versus shrinks, etc.? Then I'd be like, okay. Let's look at your product marketing. Is the product well positioned in the market? Do people know what it is? Do people understand it? Yes, great, wonderful. Have we reflected all of that on our product marketing website? Uh, you know, do you carry the brand promise, etc.? Then is the connection between the website where somebody wants to sign up and the product itself where somebody is successful? Is that connection smooth? Have you worked on your funnel? And when you get all that right, then you can take a step back and be like, no, now that we're pretty sure we have a good system here. How do we work out how to reach different people in the industry? So everyone's first move in a B2B world is like, oh, well, now we just go to content marketing, right? And it doesn't always work. As an example, like I have a friend who runs a website where they build software for dentists. And her first move was content marketing and it wasn't working. And do you know why it wasn't working? Because actually it turns out dentists don't read tech blogs, blogs, (laughs) uh, which, you know, shock horror, right? But I think like you have to match your channel to your audience. So I think, you know, you have to, but like the, the you know, and, and I could go further and say like what type of adverts would work. Maybe you need to be at dentistry conferences because maybe they don't even like look at ads online at all. Maybe there's no easy way to retarget a dentist. You know, all of the, you have to pick your channel to choose your battle if you like. So what I'd say to any young founder is kind of that, that like draw your funnel where like on one end, you've got a happy customer paying you a lot of money. And on the other end, you have somebody who's never, ever heard of you, but is in your target market. And then starting over at the happy customer, work backwards. And that's a much more efficient way to make sure that you don't piss away all your money on ads or blog posts or articles or or like paid media placements, driving traffic to an ineffective website. Or maybe the website's brilliant, but they all get in and they all churn out on month one. You have to go out the other direction. That's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give somebody in marketing. And as I said, it's taken me seven years to get there. So much good advice in all of these areas. And one of the challenges of being a founder is even when good advice hits you square between the eyes, sometimes you're just not in the right position to internalize it. You don't really understand it or other things seem more urgent, so you don't follow it. Is there any advice that you yourself have found that you've gotten over and over over the years, but it took you a while to really uh, start capitalizing on it? All of the truisms around focus and all of that shit is definitely true. But I, I think like, you know, it, there's not a lot of like deep insight there. The stuff that's like... Uh, the stuff where I think it's really easy to get unfocused or to take your, your eye off the ball, if, uh, as it were, is the importance of really knowing your customer. I think a lot of businesses, once they hit any sort of initial s- sort of traction, they kind of think, right, got it. The product is ready. Now we just need to work on everything else. And they stop connecting with their customers, not realizing that at any given point, there are like tectonic shifts in the industry that changes what is and isn't possible 
whether like in our world, that's tends to be things like AI or ML or chatbots or augmentation of, of human intelligence or you name it, right? Uh, these are like trends that happen with or without us that we need to kind of be aware of and bake in. But also your customers change because you start moving up market and you start moving into more verticals. And as a result, in your head, you still have these perfectly happy customers that you last spoke with two and a half years ago, but that might not be the reality. So I think like in general, I've always found like I've been shocked at the amount of times I have had to remind myself, you need to go and talk to customers again, Des. And honestly, like I think that's a piece where everyone who's listening to this and nodding their heads and saying, damn right, trainer, I can't believe you forgot to do that. I guarantee <laughs> you they haven't talked to their customers in a, in a couple of weeks. And uh, again, this is not a sales pitch for Intercom, but Intercom is one of the ways that will unlock a bit of that. But I myself definitely have made this mistake far too many times, like an embarrassing number of times. I've let it go like three, four or five months without talking to a single customer and hearing the pain and hearing the joy and kind of having the this, this shocking depression of having an extreme empathy for what they're trying to do and combined with an extreme optimism of knowing it's possible, but somehow we're not doing it. But also getting fueled by the passion and joy when people come up and high five me at a conference and they say, yo, your tool is rocking. It's the reason that we are able to grow our, our business or whatever. You kind of need to stay in that sort of um, emotional cycle of knowing things need to get better, but also knowing that you're doing a lot of good in the world while you have and, and your customers are the greatest source of both of those sort of uh, you know highs and lows. I think it's also difficult for people to follow advice when they don't see what the immediate return will be you know if you fix a bug you say okay well now people stop complaining about this bug that feels great if you add a feature you say well now people stop asking me for this feature that's great but if you're i don't know working on marketing your brand yeah, yeah. as an early stage founder it's like well you know when is this really going to pay off if you're talking to customers you think well i've learned a few things here but you know when is this actually going to you know result in something tangible how do you strike that balance as a founder especially if you're in the early phases and you know you might be out of business in six months if you don't handle some of the more urgent issues yeah, I the way I think about your uh, your early years certainly because obviously in Intercom we don't you know we're pretty comfortable we'll be around next quarter. Um, however, in the early days that wasn't guaranteed. I think you you basically have a list of like you know you have to kind of blend the things we need to do to stay alive with the things we need to do such that if we are alive we're in a good place. I liken this kind of like to growing up in a sense, like you, you, the stuff you need to do to make sure you grow up. But then also you want when if you do grow up, you want to make sure you still have a good life when you get there. For us, it was like, you know, winning customers, getting revenue, um, making the business actually work, making the product good. They're all things with like, with like a, you know, a, a short to maybe midterm payoff. But the question you have to ask yourself is kind of what's it all for? Like, if you get there, like you're kind of like just running on a treadmill. If like if things haven't gotten better and stronger, you won't become a better business simply by doing exactly what you did, you know, this year, next year. You need to kind of like be adding more to your like capacity, whether that's growing your brand or growing your influence or making your users happier or increasing your NPS or growing your revenue or something. Like this isn't the sort of manic grow at all costs pitch, but it's like strengthen yourself at all costs. And I think. You know, it's a hard one to blend the short term with the with, with the long term, and it's like you know, people who struggle with it. I mean, this is a real life concern too. Like there are things that are you know fun to do in the short term, but like bad ideas in the long term, whether it's like alcohol or drugs or whatever. I think in a business, the business version of of those things is like cheap, hacky growth hacks that will get me an extra boost of of endorphins this month versus things that won't necessarily pay off this month, but in a year's time we're going to look back and we're going to like shit. Look at how all this is added up. As an example, like of that strategy, like people will often uh, again go back to the content marketing piece. Like we would write blog posts with an idea that they should be relevant for years, not for like weeks or days. So we just didn't cover tech news. We're not writing about scooters in San Francisco on our blog right now. When we didn't write about like I don't know gamification in 2011 when it was hot shit. We've always kind of tried to have this long term horizon with just a, no- a knowledge that we also need to stay alive to get there. And that's kind of reflected in how we uh, trade off these priorities against each other. If we ever felt that, you know, death was getting a little bit too close or the wolves were at the door, yeah, we'd have to sort of sacrifice some of the long-term thinking to make sure we'd get ourselves out of the mix. And like what that realistically would look like in intercom terms would be like, hey, the performance of the product is degraded. We need to take engineers off new features to have them work on performance or whatever, right? But that would be like the example of the like the long-term, short-term trade-offs that we have to make frequently just to make sure that we stay alive. But it's, it's about understanding the types of risks that you're up against. And as I said, just always keeping an eye on like, if we get to like month six of this business, 
do we want to be exactly where we are today, treading water, or do we want to have actually created something that is a new asset that we didn't have six months ago? And I'd always choose the latter if you actually really want to have a sustainable sort of business, because otherwise it's just too manic uh, what you have to do to keep going. You guys are now seven years into running Intercom, and I'm sure you've hit at least some parts of the vision and some of the goals that you set for yourself early on. What does the future look like? I mean, we have a big, strong idea that we want to change the way every person talks to every internet business. Uh, we want to change the very nature of what it means to transact online. And we believe that all businesses will become web businesses. And we want to be the way in which web businesses connect with, or internet businesses connect with their customers. So we're not in any way, from a product development point of view, we're not even close to being complete. Uh, we have to hit every business. We have to hit every type of conversation that people have. We have to hit every channel people talk through. And we have to like, you know, as I said, like, you know, kind of observe all these tectonic shifts that happen along the way and make sure that we stay relevant through each of them. So there's a long road to go there to become uh, what we think we can be, uh, which is you could think of it like as maybe like, like imagine if Salesforce was built for Internet businesses. Maybe that's the sort of like uh, order of magnitude of like, you know, that we're, that we're, we're, we're thinking about sort of achieving. But I say that more from a from an actual like, uh, net impact on how business is done more so than I do anything to do with Salesforce's headcount or valuation or anything like that. We really like that is like what we're playing for. We 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 take that very seriously. And we're we're very in, intently determined to like give this our absolute best. And uh, and should we fail, I'm okay with if we fall short. Uh, we as you said, we've we've clearly like gotten to some point of success already, but. Uh, the piece I'd never be okay with is not giving it our absolute best because I think the opportunity is there. I think the mission matters. I think the vision is real and we have a long way to go. So, you know, when I hang up this call, I'll be going straight back to my desk and getting back to it. Well, best of luck, Des. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about Intercom and about what you're up to personally? Sure. Uh, Intercom is just at intercom.com. And uh, you'll find us, our blog is there. It's at blog.intercom.com and all the other sort of our books and our starter guides and all our book on getting started specifically, which is all about starting up. It's called Intercom on Starting Up, a really original name. Uh, you can find all of that there. And my name is Des Trainer. It's D-E-S-T-R-A-Y-N-O-R. And I'm on Twitter as Des Trainer, and basically every single network you can imagine as Des Trainer. And it's just des at intercom.com if anyone ever wanted to talk to me. All right, thanks so much, Des. Thank you, Corlin. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.